We're reading from Ruth 1, verses 6 through 22. And we remember from last week, those of us who were here, Naomi and her daughter-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she'd heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's needs by providing them food. She left the place where she'd been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband, because they were widowed. She kissed them, and they wept loudly. They said to her, we insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and thank you, Rosalind, for reading that. It's wonderful. And so we're in our second week of our new series in the book of Ruth, and we're calling it Ruth, A Story of God's Loving Kindness, uh, because that's what the story is. It takes you from tragedy to triumph, um, but it doesn't skip the tragic part. You know, it takes us through that. Um, if you remember, this story begins with suffering, and it begins with loss. And uh, every Monday, I have a meeting with all the other pastors from different Seven Mile Road churches. They're all over New England. Uh, and one of the guys was sharing how he finds himself preaching on suffering a lot. He said, you know, I find myself preaching on suffering a lot. You could probably look through my sermons and find different things that even maybe sound the same. And as I thought about it, I realized even in the short time of preaching on this church, at this church, that this has been the same for me. Um, and the reason why he finds all these laced, these like stories of suffering, 
laced into his sermons is that they're laced into the scriptures. God has woven them into the scriptures. The Bible doesn't shy away from suffering and loss. And why do you think that is? Because the Bible is honest about life, right? And, And life is full of hard times. And where we'd like to sometimes forget that and amuse our way, amuse away our worries, right? God's word doesn't grant us that escape, right? It gives us something much greater than escape. It gives us hope, right? It gives us faith. Uh, as a former professor of mine says, faith gets us through the struggle. It doesn't always take us out of it. Right now, there are certainly beautiful times in life, right? Times of joy, right? Seasons of celebration and abundance. And those are to be celebrated. They're previews of the abundance and celebration that God has for his people to come. But we know, right? We know that however wide that corner is, right? Just around the corner, whatever amount of time it takes, it's something else awaits, right? It's even uh, why in times of pure happiness, like something just like when you hug your child and you smell their hair, right? There's this hint of sadness as we become aware of how temporary that moment is, right? And that's why it's important to be honest when preaching through these texts. The book of Ruth is a journey through grief, right? And it doesn't end in grief, so we don't need to worry about that, but there's a great ending, right? But the author... The author lets us journey. The author lets us walk the road with these two main characters that we met last week, Naomi and Ruth. And last week, we talked about the setup of this story, how Naomi, her husband, and her two sons, they moved to Bethlehem, moved from Bethlehem in Israel to Moab because there was a famine in their hometown. They did it to avoid disaster, but disaster still struck. She lost her husband, And some years later, she lost her two sons. And after 10 years in Moab, this foreign land, she's heading home. That's where we are in the story. She's heading home back to Bethlehem. And these 10 years have changed her. Grief and loss change a person. And sometimes it's kind of like the pieces that, that you're made of get shuffled around and they land in different places. And, and you're the same, but you're not. Right? And it's different for everyone. Uh, we all process grief and loss a little different. But I want to make this real for us because it's real in Scripture and it's real in this journey. I don't want us to just breeze to the end. So I just went looking for examples, um, found this question on a message board that somebody asked, how has grief, how has dealing with grief changed you as a person? I just wanted to see what real people had to say. And here's just four of the responses that stood out to me. One person responded, I became reclusive and withdrawn. I'm now shy and uncomfortable around people and crowds. My mind is foggy all the time. I no longer articulate myself well, either when talking to people. Uh, But the strangest change of all is how I see my environment. Colors are muted now. A rose used to have a beautiful red color, where now they're more of a dark red. Blues are now gray. Another person said, grief never goes away. The shock is there for months. You forget your life. You try to cope, but you can't. I've become someone I don't know. If I go out, I pretend I'm okay because no one really cares to hear your story. And you cry 
Family stops caring very soon. That hurts. Here's another one. I lost my husband three months ago, and it has humbled me. I see all my weaknesses and needs coming out as I attempt to live and deal with grief. I feel like I'm in a long, dark tunnel with the light at the end. The sadness chills me to my bones, and at times, I forget where I am. I'm avoiding people who don't seem to understand what's going on as they haven't experienced it. I'm searching for a new identity as a widow since my mate has been ripped away from me, and I'm so very sore and vulnerable. I'm very aware of the presence of God and seeking to know him more. I have faith now that I will come out of this tunnel stronger for having been there and able to have empathy with others. And here's the last one. I've dealt with grief, uh, the grief of losing my parents. Whatever delusion I had that God may exist in some way died with them. They both died a lingering death of cancer, wasting away. My goal is not to die in the same way. I do not fear death itself, but the dying. Just four examples of everyday people and, and, and their take on what grief has done to them. So all or most of us have experienced this kind of loss. It, it changes you. right? We don't always talk about it. We don't always show it. And, and some people say it changes you forever. If you think about yourself, how has grief changed you as a person? Because it certainly changed Naomi. Right? She makes this long journey home, and Naomi, who arrives in Bethlehem, is a different woman than the one that left 10 years beforehand. And we're going to jump to that last part of the chapter, and we're going to look at Naomi and Ruth's uh, reception in Bethlehem, and then we'll work our way backwards, and we'll talk about the road and the journey that got them there. And so we're going to actually start in verse 19 of Ruth 1 today. It says, The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival. Naomi's been gone for 10 years, right? Long enough that a lot has changed, but short enough that everybody remembers her. There's joy surrounding her return to home, but that joy isn't coming from her. It's coming from the townspeople. The narrator says the whole town is excited when she arrives with Ruth. But when she comes back, all that's happened over those 10 years, everything that she's gone through has made her almost unrecognizable. Verse 19, the, the end of verse 19, it says, the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Like they gasped when they saw her. Grief changes a person, right? Suffering changes a person. And she says as much. She's been transformed from the wife and mom who left Bethlehem, right, to now this widow who's returning. A lot has happened, and she's gone through it without any of these folks by her side, right? She's been in a foreign land, right? Three major family deaths with no support at all. Think about that. You know, the Jewish people, even then, they had a structure for the grieving process. There are pictures in the Old Testament, in, in Scripture, that even predate this story of Joseph mourning his father Jacob for seven days. The Israelites grieving Moses together for 30 days. It was traditional to take seven days after the burial to grieve the death of a loved one and have a meal of condolence provided after the burial. Who was doing that for Naomi when she was in Moab? 
Mourners would remain in the house with friends and family throughout the week. Who was doing that for her when she was away from Bethlehem? Prayers would be offered and readings from the Torah were shared. Reminders of God and his grace. Who was doing that for her in a place that didn't worship God? Memorial candles were often lit. Traditional grooming would stop. There was this sense of communal grief, an idea that like things can pause for a moment so that we can acknowledge that this person was important and they're gone. Right? She probably didn't get any of that. It looks like she had none of that comfort in those 10 years. And, you know, people say that time heals, but I don't think that's true. Right? Time on its own doesn't heal. I had a good friend of mine say the other day, I don't want time to heal me. I want the Lord to comfort me. And often, friends, that happens through his people, right? through us, through one another. Time on its own, it has no power to heal or comfort. Right? Time can actually make things worse. And it looks like that's what's happened with Naomi. These 10 years haven't made her better. Right, They've made her worse. Her town is excited that she's back. They see her and they essentially gasp, can this be Naomi? She says in verse 20, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered, for the Lord Almighty has made me very bitter. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, right, sweet. Call me Mara, a name that literally means bitter, She's changed her name to bitter. Her years in Moab have changed her, and she feels they've changed her so much to the core that she needs to change her name to Mara. She's not the woman who left 10 years ago. She tells them, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. Naomi sees God's hand in the journey of her life, but not in a positive way. She sees him as in control, Right? But she doesn't see him as good or for her good. Right? He's made her very bitter. And she goes on, verse 21. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And let's think back to the beginning of the story when she left during a famine. Did she actually go away full? Because the story seems to go that she and her family went away empty and ended up with more emptiness. Now, granted, she's probably talking about the fact that she went away with these three men, and now those three are dead, and she's coming back. But there is a little bit of a false idealization at play here. Sometimes we ourselves can do that when we look back, right? So is she returning empty, too? Is she returning alone? No, she has somebody with her, right? She has Ruth with her, and she has no idea the potential that lies in the relationship that she has with Ruth and what God is about to do through that. She continues telling her friends, why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Right? She's not here to pretend, and, and she says what's on her mind, which is in some ways admirable. Right? She's not putting on a, a smiling face for these folks. This is the real Naomi they're encountering. But some of her thinking is a little concerning. Right? She's of the mind that all that's gone on in Moab was God's way of afflicting her, punishing her, opposing her. Right? She's kind of the center of this story, not thinking about maybe where she falls in light of a bigger story. Uh, another translation for God opposing her is that he humiliated her. 
And she calls him by his covenant name, Yahweh, and she calls him Almighty, which, by the way, I don't know if you knew this, but anytime you're reading in the Bible and you see the capitals L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, that's there in place of God's name uh, in an attempt to prevent people from using his name in vain. So when you see that capital Lord, originally what's written there is, is Yahweh, the name that God gave to Moses. When, when he met him at the burning bush, right, and sent him to tell Pharaoh to set the Israelites free. And so every time you see that in your Old Testament, that's what that is. So when she calls him the Lord, that's what she's calling him. She's hearkening back to his covenant name. When she calls him Almighty, she's hearkening back to the fact that he is Lord over all, right? He is powerful, but he's not in her favor, right? And so she's saying, Israel's God, the Almighty One, He's brought bitterness because he opposes her, right? He, he has afflicted her. What do you think about her view of God in this moment? Right? She says, he brought me back empty. But again, there's Ruth sitting beside her, a little awkward for Ruth, right? Sitting there as this woman says this. Uh, and I want to go back and look at how Ruth ended up there, how, how Ruth ended up there with Naomi. These two women journeyed together to Bethlehem from Moab, but their walks were very different, right? The purpose of their walk, even what they did on that walk was very different. So let's go back and look at this. Let's look at Naomi's walk and let's look at Ruth's walk. So looking back to when they were leaving Moab for Bethlehem in verse 6, she and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. And so the famine was over, right? And that's one reason why Naomi and her daughters-in-law, they head back to Bethlehem. But notice... At the end, she has just one daughter-in-law with her when she arrives there. Right? Where did the other daughter-in-law go? Where did Orpah go? Why didn't she make it to Bethlehem? Well, there's uh, this exchange between Naomi and her daughters-in-law that happens down the road as they're making their way back uh, to Naomi's hometown. In verse 8, she says, Each of you, go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. So maybe she was doing some thinking on the road, right, back to Bethlehem. But Naomi comes to this conclusion that the other two women should turn back, right? The other two women would be better off in their own mother's houses, move on with their lives uh, in Moab, find new husbands. Right? Having been an alien in a foreign land herself, she might have been thinking about the hard road these women were about to face as immigrants in Israel, as outsiders. Right? We talked a little bit about that last week, how Moabites, they didn't worship the Lord, right? the God of Israel. They had their own localized God named Chemosh, they had a reputation uh, in, in Israel, right? And that could present some significant challenges for all three of these women. So she tells them, go back to your mother's house. And the fact that she says, go back to your mother's house, stands out when you consider that this was a patriarchal society. So, so fathers were really, it was the father's house, 
Right? So she doesn't say go back to your father's house. Why do you think she says that? Go back to your mother's house. Right? She's saying go to your own mom's. Right? They're on the road with her like daughters, right, with a mom. And she tells them, you're better off with your Moabite mothers than you are with me. Later on, we'll see that she believes she has nothing of consequence to offer these women. And so she sends them off with a prayer. She says, may the Lord show you kindness as you've shown to the dead and to me. And that word kindness is that Hebrew word I talked about last week that's kind of woven throughout this book, that Hebrew word has said. Right? And we talked about that last week, that it doesn't really have an adequate English uh, definition. It just means loyal love or covenant love. Steadfast love is another word. Love based in promise. Love that won't let go. Right? And it's, imp- it's an important word throughout the Bible because it characterizes God. Uh, but it's an important word in this book because it's going to come up over and over again. And so Naomi, she sends them away. But then they respond to her in verse 10. They say, we insist on returning with you to your people. They don't, they don't want to be sent away. They want to stick with her. But Naomi replies in verse 11, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to give you more sons who could become your husbands? And she's being really practical. She's basically saying, look at us. We're three widows. We're heading back to a small town. I myself am destitute. What can I do for the two of you? Right? She's out of sons. If they're walking with her, then they're walking into an even riskier future than the one that's already ahead of them in their own area. She says, why do you want to go with me? Verse 12, return home, my daughters. Go on, for I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and bear sons, Would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? And again, she's thinking very practically, but she's also thinking inside of a very small box, right? In her mind, the only good outcome for these women would be if she had two other sons to offer them, right? If she doesn't have them, then she has nothing else to offer these women. She's stuck, right? And and it's understandable, I've read some commentaries that are pretty harsh with Naomi and her faith. And trust me, I'm not applauding her faith here, but I can understand why she's having trouble picturing a big and bright future for herself and for these two women. That doesn't mean that she's right. As the story goes on, we'll find out she's actually very wrong in her assessment, but I can understand it. When someone goes through what she went through, and, and, and when they go through it alone, that can be traumatic, right? And, and traumatized people have trouble thinking about the future as anything but dreadful. So where's her faith in God? Well, she tells Ruth and Orpah in the last part of verse 13, she says, No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. She's walking back to Bethlehem. She's believing that God's hand has turned against her. My life is much too bitter for you to share, she tells Orpah and Ruth. And she's basically telling them, you don't want to come with me. And I'm headed for disaster. God is using my back for target practice. If you walk beside me, you're likely to get hit with one of his arrows. It's essentially what she's saying. She's got a big target on her back before the Lord. 
Naomi's afraid to hope because she believes that God is sovereign, that he's over all things, but she doesn't believe that he's good. She doesn't believe that he cares about her good. That's what all her experience tells her. If God cared about my good, why would he let bad things happen to me? Right? Why would he let bad things happen to the people I love? This is a classic question, right? From 3,000 years ago in her day all the way up to today. Anyone afraid to hope this morning because your story has caused you to wonder about God's goodness? Right? You're not alone in that. So not only does Naomi believe she has nothing to offer Ruth and Orpah, she believes that God has nothing but hardship to offer these two women as well. She persists in sending them away because she loves them, right? She's sincere. She really believes that they're better off. Verse 14, it says, again, they wept loudly. And this is hard for everyone, right? And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth, Ruth clung to her. Right? Orpah listens to Naomi. She turns around, but Ruth won't let Naomi go. In verse 15, Naomi said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. She insists that Ruth follow her sister-in-law back to her people and back to her gods. As we think about Naomi's faith, this is concerning. Right? Sending Ruth back to her gods. But again, it confirms this idea that Naomi thinks Ruth is better off worshiping idols than trusting Yahweh, right? Because of the way that he's dealt with her. And that's absolutely false. And we're going to see that in the coming weeks when we go through this story and as this storyline progresses. God had called Israel to be a light for the nations to show them the difference between him and other gods. And she has this woman from the nations walking with her, and she tells her, go back to your gods. See, we need to be careful regardless of our circumstances, that we don't look at our faith as just a comparable alternative to other faiths, or, or our God is just our God, right? He's the God of the universe, whether we're in good times are bad times, and he's made himself accessible to us and to all people, right? And he wants them to know him. But can you see, if, if Naomi, an Israelite, is there, right, and she's dealing with some deep, deep wounds, she's in need of care, right? She's in need of restoration. She's in need of loyal love, love that won't let go, right? This is Naomi's walk home. She sees herself as someone who can't help anyone in need, but not somebody in need herself. Right? She's telling these women, I can't be responsible for you, but she's struggling to let them be responsible for her. But Ruth, Ruth clings to her and she tells her, no, right? go back to your people and your gods, she says to Ruth. And then we get to hear from Ruth for the first time in this book. In verse 16, she replies, and I can only imagine that they're still weeping on the road. And she says, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. 
Now where Naomi is weak, Ruth is strong. Right? In this speech, um, Ruth gives us a picture of that word, hesed, right? This loving kindness, this loyal love, love that's based in a promise, love that won't let go, love that won't give up. You might have heard that uh, before, that where you go, I'll go. Your God will be my God. You might have heard that before in wedding vows or a prayer involved in a wedding. And, and a lot of people don't know that it comes from this book of Ruth and that it's not actually between a husband and a wife, but between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. But it's one of Scripture's most compelling expressions of commitment beyond the ones, besides the ones that God has given himself to his people. And there's so much in this statement. It's written like a poem in, the, in this book in couplets, two lines each. And she just tells her, stop pleading with me to abandon you. See, Naomi sees uh, her leaving as Ruth being released from some kind of bondage. But Ruth sees leaving Naomi as an abandonment of Naomi. Right? Naomi is saying to Ruth, I can't be responsible for you. And Ruth is saying, I am responsible for you. You are the one who needs caretaking, sister, right? You are the one in greater need than I am. You need someone to walk with you. And more than that, you need a commitment of love. Wherever you go, I will go. I'll leave my home for you. Your people, they will be my people. I'll forsake my culture and my family. Your God, he will be my God. Those gods Naomi was sending her back to, Ruth is leaving them for the covenant God of Israel. Ruth is leaving them for Yahweh. She chooses the God that Naomi says is against her. Right? And she makes this commitment for life. She calls on God to punish her severely if anything but death separates her from Naomi. And how does Naomi respond to this? Verse 18, we see that she's speechless. She stops talking to her when she sees her determination. Ruth will not let go. Ruth is making a weighty statement, and she's making a risky one, right? She's valuing her daughterly devotion to Naomi over her own chances at marriage and security. She's going all in on Naomi. And yet Naomi, when they arrive in Bethlehem, says, The Lord brought me back empty. Not true. And let's not forget that Ruth is grieving too. Right? She just lost her husband. She's walking away from her home. She's destitute, potentially more than Naomi, who has property and family to return to. And maybe it's her youth. Maybe she just has grit. But where Naomi sees that she has nothing to offer, Ruth offers her very self. And that's a picture of God. It's a picture of the God that Naomi needs to know and experience. And it's just the beginning of the blessings that are coming her way. But it starts with another person walking the road back to Bethlehem with her, a person that she didn't even want there. And so they journey back to Bethlehem, but on two very different walks. Ruth says, I make no promises because God's promises are lost on me. 
Right? I mean, Naomi says, I make no promises because God's promises are lost on me. And Ruth makes Naomi a promise sealed in the name of the very God that Naomi thinks is against her. Right? Naomi walks a road of helplessness, and Ruth walks alongside her as a helper. What walk do you find yourself walking this morning if you had to just do a personal assessment? Like, what walks do you find yourself walking this morning? It's okay to walk like Naomi, right? It's okay to be in that spot. But here's the thing. When we're Naomi, we need to recognize it, right? Or listen to others when they do, right? And, and allow the roots of the world to walk alongside us. Sometimes we need help. Right? Sometimes we need help, and that's okay. Better yet, seek it out. Ask for it. Don't wait for people to find you. Don't make people push through like Ruth pushed through. Seek it out. Sometimes we need the faith of others to carry us through. Right? But we don't need to make it as hard for them as Naomi made it for Ruth. And if we're not Naomi in this season, then we have an opportunity to be a Ruth, right? Man or woman, to show love that won't let go, to walk with people. It's beautiful in this story, right? But, but it's hard. Right? It's not transactional. It's long-term. It's ongoing. And that's hard for us. That's a commitment, the church should be categorized by the heart of Ruth because in this passage, Ruth is displaying the heart of God. Are we willing to long haul it with others? Are we willing to long haul it with others? In her book, Prayer in the Night, Tish Harrison Warren says, Christians believe that God himself walks with the afflicted, and that's what we're called to do. This can be a difficult vocation. She writes about her church and how they were great at walking with people in crisis. She says, if someone's in the hospital, had a surgery, lost a job, or had a family member die, we showed up with casseroles and prayers and tears and help. It was beautiful to watch. What's harder for us, though, is walking with those in long-term need. You need five meals after a hip replacement? We've got you. You need three meals a week for the next 10 years? We have no idea how to make that happen. You need a pastoral visit every week or two for the rest of your life? That's probably more than we can do. And of course, we are limited, right? Churches are mostly volunteers. There are social services that are able to, his, uh, that are able to assist, and we should avail ourselves of them. Uh, but she goes on to say, this also hints at a deeper struggle in the broader church, at least the church in the United States, that makes it hard for us to suffer with the afflicted. We often don't know how to walk with people when the road is long and there will likely be no happy ending. The lives of the afflicted remind us that suffering is not simply a problem to be solved. And suffering won't be solved until Jesus returns. Ruth had no power to solve Naomi's suffering. She just had her own self to walk the road with her. Right? And in doing so, she imaged God to Naomi. And we see a preview of a greater comfort that's to come 1,000 years later 
in Jesus through this picture of Ruth. Jesus, right, who suffered like Naomi, only to a greater extent. Right? Jesus, who loved like Ruth, only to a greater extent. Jesus, who left the comfort of heavenly perfection to walk with us, to walk for us on a road that we couldn't walk. Right? Ruth committed her life to Naomi, and Jesus committed to die for us. When Isaiah prophesied about Jesus coming, this Messiah, he says he was despised and rejected by man. He was a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains. And we, in turn, regarded him as stricken, struck down by God, and, a word Naomi used, afflicted. He was afflicted for us. He died for our sins. When we feel like Naomi and when we think God is punishing us or when we have questions about his goodness toward us, we only need to look at the cross and realize that Jesus took all of it for us when he died on the cross. And he was raised from the dead and his story didn't end in death and neither does ours. If you believe in him, where he goes, you can go. If we trust in him, if we believe in him, if we hand our lives over to him, if we trust him with our lives. Jesus came as a sufferer like Naomi. And where Ruth could only promise Naomi that the only thing that could separate them was death, Jesus promises more. Right? We we read this uh, earlier as our assurance. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ruth says, nothing but death will separate us. Jesus says, even death will not separate us. Jesus has made a promise to those who are in him, to those who have trusted in him. In whatever walk you're on today, God has promised to walk alongside you.